0: you're listening to a sermon from Grace Church located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met before, my name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, I just want to say welcome. It's really great to have you with us today. Thanks for coming and Uh, worshiping with us and joining us today and we're in a new series. We kind of teach through books of the Bible generally and we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is only the third week so you haven't missed much. Um, Well uh, let me back up on that. I don't always say go back and listen to what you missed but I am going to say that uh, this time because the first two messages on Ecclesiastes we tried to give some explanation to what the book is about and give you some handles because if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, or unfamiliar with this book, Wisdom Literature, it reads different, it functions differently than other books of the Bible. On the surface, a lot of it's depressing. So when you read it, if you, if you don't know kind of what's the purpose and what's the author trying to accomplish, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to trace the book. So let me give you like the 60-second view of what we've already talked about uh, in the first two, and then we'll jump into this third one. So the book is written by a guy named Ecclesiastes, and in the English Bible, uh, in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 1, it calls him the preacher, he calls himself the preacher, Uh, that's one way to translate the word Ecclesiastes, sometimes he's called the teacher, Uh, he's also the king, so he's king in Jerusalem, and especially with the passage we're going to look at today, his life very much maps on uh, to the life of Solomon, David's son. And uh, so it's kind of uh, his story, and he starts off really with a jolt, saying the first verse really where, after the introduction is, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And uh, this uh, this word vanity, uh, is, it's, a, it's a metaphor, the word is actually breath, that's the literal word, so the ESV is translated vanity, so, Some there's different translations, people translate it differently, but uh, the main idea is, is the breath, it is something that is fleeting, something that's here only a moment. Like for instance, on a freezing day, if you breathe out, you see your breath for just a moment, and then it's gone. And so he means that all of life is so fleeting, it's so brief, but it means more than that, this metaphor breath. It also means that it's elusive. You can't grab hold of it. So when you breathe out like that, if you try to grab that uh, little mist, that fog in the air, and uh, try to bottle it, or put it in your pocket, it's not going to happen, because you can't grab onto it, and he's, the book's saying that's very much how life is, that you can't control life, it's moving fast, and you can't master it, and the second big idea is, he says, um, after Vanity of Vanities, verse 3, chapter 1, he says, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? The implicit answer is nothing, so he's saying, all of life, you can't use the things of life for your own personal gain, by that he means your own personal satisfaction, your own personal meaning. You're not going to find your meaning, you're not going to find your reason for living and existence through the things of this world that you can chase, because ultimately that only comes from our creator. Uh, At the end of the book, towards the end of the book, he says, remember the creator in the days of your youth. So if you're young and you're here today, this passage we're going to look at is going to be Solomon's story, and I urge you to listen carefully. If you're in middle school or high school or Uh, college or even in your 20s uh, if you've got your whole life in front of you as they say uh, this is wise counsel for someone who's seen it all and done it all uh, for us today Um, and where it began we saw last time we taught on this we saw it was a poem he gave a poem in verses 1 through 11 now he's going to change genre and it's going to be a memoir he's going to talk about his own history and in the middle of it he's going to punctuate it with a few proverbs which are wise sayings So uh, this is kind of, all these are kind of how uh, wisdom literature works, though admittedly there's not much in the Bible of what we're reading today. There's not much in the Bible of memoir, where someone takes you back through their own experience. That's not common, but very helpful today. So we're going to begin by reading chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and uh, then we'll look uh, at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But we're going to start with this first chapter, 12 through 18, about Solomon's journey. So listen to this God's holy word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after win. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I have applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow so the preacher is going to take us down two pathways today in what we're going to read the first is the pursuit of wisdom and so he's trying to find out what life is all about using wisdom so it's it's in some ways it's the pursuit of wisdom and in other ways it's the pursuit of trying to understand all that is by using his wisdom Uh, That's what he is doing. And this is really a lofty pursuit. Uh, He says, I applied my heart, verse 11, to seek and search out all that is done under heaven. That means I want to understand everything in life. This phrase under heaven is the same phrase. It really means the same thing as under the sun, which we've been reading. He's talking about life under the sun. It means life in this world, life in this age. In the Bible, there's two ages. There's this age and the age to come. There's this age, life on earth, and for those who are uh, believers in Jesus, there is a glorious life and a new heaven and new earth uh, at the return of Jesus. So there's this age and the age to come. This age is the fallen world. This age is life under heaven, life under the sun. So that's what he's talking about. And, and, and he says, after I've looked at everything, here's my conclusion, and it's a letdown. I'll just say, it's a letdown. Verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And this is the conclusion. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So this whole business of life is is an unhappy sort of existence. Why? Well, he tells us why in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he's saying, all of life, living life, is, it, it, it is just lacking. Uh, it is a, there, there's something missing in life, he's recognizing. Uh, it's an unhappy business. And the reason it's an unhappy business is because it is like uh, vanity. It is like striving after wind. Vanity is that breath word again. So he's saying, it's fleeting. It's passing so fast, and I can't corral it. I can't manage and control and sort of own life. I can't be the captain of my own destiny, my own fate. Uh, I, I can't master life. And so this is an unhappy business. And it's like striving after wind, he says. That's an interesting phrase. We don't use that phrase. We, uh, you know, it could, be cha- it, it could be translated shepherding the wind as well. But we don't use striving after wind or shepherding wind. The phrase we would use, that we'd be familiar, that means the same thing is it's like herding cats. That, that's shepherding the wind. He's saying it's like herding cats. Have you ever, Have you ever seen, or maybe you've been, a soccer coach for four-year-olds they've never played before, and you've had a practice or two, and then you get out there with dreams that you will demonstrate how beautiful this beautiful game really is. And as soon as the whistle blows, it's chaos. And no matter what you do and how much you cheer, you cannot bring order to this mess. And he's saying, that's what life is like. It's like shepherding the wind. It's like coaching four-year-olds in the game of soccer. You can't manage it. You can't control it. It's futile. It's futile to try to own it, is what he says. And he describes his findings with a proverb. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. It's an unhappy business, he says, life, because what is crooked cannot be made straight. Now, he doesn't mean crooked in the sense of um, immoral or something like that, corrupt. That's not what he means. He literally means crooked. So again, this is a proverb, but it's it's a proverb that functions as a metaphor. He's saying there is stuff in life that is bent, and you cannot straighten it out. There's just stuff in life that is bent. When he looked around and examined all of life, said, this is unhappy because there are things out of your control that you cannot fix. And we all this resonates with us. We all know this in some way, don't we? Maybe you're here today and you have a, a health condition and you've sought diagnosis and you can't get one and you can get no relief. There seems to be no cure for what you're enduring. That's, life feels bent in those moments. Maybe you have a relationship challenge. You've got a problem in a relationship, and you know what you've come to learn? Is that no matter what I do, I cannot fix another person. That's when life seems like an unhappy business, a striving after wind. I can't manage. I can't control. I can't fix it. It's bent. Maybe you have been unable to find a spouse. Maybe you've bounced job to job. You're trained. You have experience, but you, you can't find it. You can't find what it feels like. You hear people talking about, this is what I was made to do. And you go, I can't find that. I just don't feel any sense of real fulfillment in my job. Maybe your children are not doing what you desire them to do. They could be two years old. They could be 20 years old. doesn't matter. But you, you realize, I can't, that's bent. I can't change another person's heart. Maybe someone you love dies prematurely. Boy, that's where we find that life is bent. You can't bring them back. Perhaps you didn't know how short the time really was. We look around the world in your life, uh, certainly in the headlines in our country, and we look at what's happening all over the world, and we say there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much injustice in various places, and this is just a clear sign that life is bent and cannot be made straight by human wisdom, by human solutions. We cannot fix it. He goes on beyond that, and he he says not only is it it bent, but he says what is lacking cannot be counted. There are deficits in life, he's saying, that, that it just doesn't all add up. Life is sort of like an account that cannot be balanced. Life doesn't add up. I applied my wisdom and looked around, but it does not add up. Solomon says even when I applied wisdom, I could not figure it out. It left me, it left me uh, unsatisfied. And that's why it's an unhappy business that we have. We can't control this fleeting, uh, elusive life. Daniel Tamet is a man who, about 19 years ago, set the record, the European record, for reciting Pi, from memory. Not like apple, strawberry, chocolate. I need to explain that for people like myself. Um, Pi is a mathematical constant that I need to read my notes what it actually is. It's the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. Okay, that's pi. Um, I can give you three digits, 3.14. That's what I know, pi. It's 3.14. It's as far as I can go, but it's this this, you know, streaming line of digits is pi. And so, Tamet was able to recite from memory 22,504 digits. It, it took him five hours and nine minutes. Now, if you can believe this, this record has actually been, I don't know about in Europe, in Asia, it's been shattered now. It's well beyond, they're well beyond that. But at this point, that was the record in Europe, Twenty-two thousand digits. Can you imagine? This guy is uh, unusually brilliant. Uh, it's said of him that he learned the Icelandic language in a week. And uh, so he, he, is, he is engaging in a level of intellect and memory and aptitude that none of us in this room, I presume, are able to function with. In his memoir, which is called Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant, which is how he describes himself, he writes about well very much what Solomon's talking about, the angst of being brilliant, which is, I've got a lot of angst, that ain't one of them, Uh, but the (laughs) angst of being brilliant. And this is what he says, Tammet writes, I still remember vividly the experience I had as a teenager lying on the floor of my room, staring up at the ceiling. I was trying to picture the universe in my head, to have a concrete understanding of what everything was. In my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and looked over them, wondering what I would find. In that instant, I felt really unwell. And I could feel my heart beating hard inside me because for the first time I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take a person so far. This realization frightened me and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. This brilliant mind realized I can't figure it all out and it made him unwell. It affected him so much physically that his heart starts rapidly beating. And this is very much what Solomon talks about, the wisest man of his day. Uh, he said that even if, after he applied his heart to know wisdom and all things, verse 18 says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's saying the same thing. Vexation, uh, it means something that is frustrating or even something that is annoying. So just like Daniel Tamet, this is what he says, when I looked at everything in life, I realized it didn't all add up and it was actually frustrating. I applied my wisdom, unusual wisdom, great wisdom. Verse 16 says, surpassing everyone in Jerusalem before me who had ruled over Jerusalem. So this guy had keen ability, unusual ability, world record-setting ability. He also had God informing him. And he said, I looked at everything, and it was frustrating. It was maddening because I couldn't figure it all out. I couldn't manage or control or oversee it. The more you know, the sadder you become, he says, because you look around and you see brokenness. Wherever you look, you see it's bent and can't be straightened. It doesn't add up. It can't be balanced. And his his point is that human wisdom cannot solve the enigma of life. Human wisdom will never be able to figure it all out. And Solomon is delivering straight talk for us. Very clearly saying, "I I was despondent of it all because as much as I knew, I couldn't connect all the dots. I couldn't explain life. And so I was vexed by the whole thing. The pursuit of wisdom didn't solve what he was looking for. His next pathway is the pursuit of pleasure. And we find that in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under, the he- under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, admittedly, the pathway of pleasure is a much more popular pathway, a much more desired pathway than the pathway of wisdom, in our culture anyway, and so that's what he did, and, and he's, this entire pursuit, he's really seeking to answer the question, is there anything in life is there any pleasure that can really fulfill the human heart? And he goes on quite the study. I mean, this is reasoned. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. This is planned pleasure. Th- this is sort of a strategic hedonism. He's going to look and try to figure this out on his own. And it's, it's almost like he's a systematic thinker. Like He's going systematic, to r- systematically run through the options and see if there's any pleasure and before tracing his journey, he tells us the conclusion at the beginning. Verse one, he says, I will test you with pleasure and uh, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. This was a breath. This was fleeting. This didn't have substance and staying power to fill my heart with purpose and a sense of gain. This didn't give me gain. Like I didn't find life through these avenues. Uh, Zach S. Wine, who is a pastor who's written about Ecclesiastes, he has this, he has this great, I, I think, sort of picture of what's going on in Solomon's pursuit here. He says, imagine you've got a closet and it's filled with old games, like the old traditional board games, Monopoly's in there, and you've got Scrabble, you've got Sorry, you've got Trouble with a little bubble pop o thing there to, to, to get the dice going, you've got Clue got Candyland, got all the games, the amusements of life are in this closet. And you, you go into the closet, and there's nine different games in there, and they're all a little worn and tattered. It's clear that people have used them before. And you pull them out, and you play them one by one, hoping that each game will give some sense of life to you. And he says, right here, we have essentially the nine games of life. Well, oh, you might be able to add another one or two. You might be able to combine a couple of these. But he says, basically, there's nine pleasure pursuits. And here they are, the nine pleasure pursuits. He said, you've got laughter, you've got alcohol, you've got property, you've got nature, money and possessions, art, sex, achievement, and work. These are the nine general life pursuits that generation after generation people pursue looking for life. And we're just going to walk through these briefly because Solomon, surprisingly, Ecclesiastes is a book of joy. We'll see that in a few few chapters. But he's got to undermine all false pathways so that we see the one true pathway to life and genuine pleasure. So he starts with laughter, verse 2. He's going to pursue comedy. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? But he, he gave himself to... Laughter. Now, laughter is a gift. Actually, every one of these, when used in a proper way, the Bible would say they are all can be gifts of God. Laughter is a gift. I love to laugh. God is not anti-laughter. God created laughter. But the reality is that if you seek to pursue laughter, pursue comedy, to sort of fill your heart, sometimes it's just a, an attempt, an escape, an attempt to sort of cover over the gaping hole of our souls, which realize that life is fleeting and our time is running out, all of us. And and sometimes we can pursue the diversion of laughter in a way to help us to feel something in our numb souls. Have you ever read the biography or autobiography of a comedian? I've read a couple. They are oftentimes, generally speaking, The saddest, most isolated, alone people in the culture. But they've mastered the ability to laugh and help others laugh, often as an escape from the emptiness of life. The reason when he comes to the end and said there's nothing to be gained under the sun, the reason laughter is here is because laughter does not really produce gain. That is, it isn't lasting. It's momentary. Laughter doesn't fundamentally change anything. A generation comes, a generation goes, everyone dies, everyone's forgotten, but the earth remains, he says in chapter one. And so you can laugh in a moment, but it doesn't fundamentally change you, and it doesn't fundamentally change reality. You can tonight go watch the funniest movie, your favorite, uh, uh, you know, comic, uh, comedy and you can watch that. You can get together, I love to do this, do this, with friends and tell old stories and laugh until you're out of breath. But it doesn't fundamentally change who you are. Uh, it doesn't really fundamentally change the world around you. And that's his point, that it was a striving after wind. It didn't, didn't give me lasting joy. It's mad alcohol. He pursues wine, he says. I search with my heart to cheer my body with wine. Now he doesn't say, is he getting like blackout drunk uh, to avoid life? Or I would wonder, given the kind of things he's going to talk about in a minute, his aesthetic pleasures, his appreciation of beauty, that is, and the fine life. Maybe he's more talking about the enjoyment of the sight and the smell and the taste of wine, like a real connoisseur. But whichever he's talking about, the point is that you can't bottle fulfillment. It doesn't come in a bottle. Now, wine is a gift. Um, We're not to be drunk, but it is a gift, and it is something that can be enjoyed, uh, especially as it's talked about here, as as, as I mentioned before, sort of of the the, uh, taste, the smell, the, the... sight clarity of the wine a couple summers ago i did a wine tasting uh with someone in our church led it godly person i know just saying that could disappoint some of you there are other new people in the church will say hey we found our church uh so <laughs> i'm gonna alienate a few and i'm gonna be best friends with a few i didn't get drunk i did a wine tasting okay so i just be, be clear about that i'm not advocating you do the same but i did that and um, so you know how you're supposed to you get trained to like you know stick your nose in the glass or sort of like experience the bouquet I think it's called and sort of like we're all supposed to write down what we, what we were smelling and and like the smart people like the sophisticated wine people they're saying well oh, it's kind of earthy i think there's a, a touch of pine uh, you know yeah i'm getting a touch of pine there and yeah you know, so yeah i, I think, well i think there's some jasmine or maybe there's some elderberry that's amazing and I think, uh, well, underneath it all is, yeah, it's. I'm I'm sensing uh, breath of a unicorn. I mean, it's in there, you know. (laughs) So we're all supposed to tell, and I smell this wine, and I gave an honest answer. I said it smells like (laughs) band-aids, and because band-aids have a unique smell, you go home and open one up, and it's got that rubbery, plasticky kind of smell. If you don't remember it, go do go, and and that's what this wine smelled like, but. that was like my peak of culture. I realized at that moment, I will never be a wine connoisseur. Like, give that guy a juice box and send him home, you know. That's... <laughs> so, many sophisticated palates can appreciate wine, and perhaps that's what he's doing. The Bible says that wine is a gift, but the Bible gives a lot of warnings about wine. Here's one of them, Proverbs 20. Uh, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The point is that wine can be experienced as a gift from God, or wine can lead astray. And and that's why he's saying here that ultimately the pursuit of wine was, well, that was being led astray. That wasn't the path to life. Uh, He says that, you know, that he wanted to pursue wisdom and and understand folly. Verse 3, he says... Um, He wanted to understand, so he might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he's saying, I drank, and he said, I had my wisdom with me. I drank, but I did that during the few days of my life. Because when wine is used to smooth over the rough patches of life, or to escape from the the reality that we are all facing impending death, that life is slipping between our fingers, that we can't grasp it. And Ecclesiastes ends by saying, here's the end of the matter. You will stand before God in judgment and give an account for your life. So rather than view that, rather than view God and where we're headed, we can seek to anesthetize ourselves through escape like laughter or wine. They are gifts that can be appreciated, but they're not to be used to find life. He next says, I had great works. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. So he's saying here, I I had property. I didn't know another way to say that. I had property. Um, I had this estate. So I built a beautiful estate, cover of architectural digest. Estates, plural. I had houses. They were decorated with the finest furnishings, the finest artwork in the world, because he is the king, one of the wealthiest men on the planet, smartest man on the planet. Um, one of the billionaires that we look around today and see their lives that that was him and he said so i i had that and i built gardens for myself as well he's pursuing pleasure through the place he lives a property that is lush and extravagant and what's key in this it starts here and it goes through the rest of the things he mentions they're for him Verse 6, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He's looking to leverage this amazing home, this incredible design. Maybe he designed it. We're created in the image of God. We design. That's a beautiful thing. That's a gift. But he cherished this design. He cherished his vineyards. He enjoyed all that he had that were for himself. And so there's nothing wrong with a beautiful home. There's nothing wrong with nice, uh, pleasant decor. The problem is that we look for our meaning, our purpose. We actually set people's value and worth on the place that they live. And what Solomon's teaching here is you will never find home in a great house or a delightful piece of property because your heart only finds home in its creator. Your heart only finds home in God, so you can't build a home on this earth that's going to ultimately satisfy your aesthetic pleasures of the beauty of the home, your comfort, your safety, your security, your vineyards, which are producing your wine, which isn't working to fix your life, but your vineyards, you're not going to be able to have all that to fix your life. That only comes from God. Next he pursues nature, verses 5 and 6. I made myself gardens and parks, planted them with fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of the fruit trees. Do you see that? I made myself gardens. These aren't public gardens to serve others. I made myself pools and fruit trees for myself. It's delightful. He's got this delightful, beautiful, sounds like he's trying to recreate Eden almost. He's got this beautiful place. He indulges himself in the refreshing outdoors. Listen, the outdoors is a gift. It's a gift to be outdoors. It's a gift to experience mountains and oceans and uh, to see something like the Grand Canyon. These are gifts from the Lord, but the point of those is not for me to be satisfied in the gardens or the mountain or whatever that I have created in my own estate. The goal is to direct me to God. The creation declares the glory of God. But he's taking nature, which is a gift, and sort of trying to hem it in on his property to fulfill himself. And you cannot find an outdoor adventure, a wilderness adventure, a hiking or sightseeing or whatever you like to do in nature. It will never be it because it points to the one who rules over all. Can never be satisfied, ultimately, in that. Next, money and possessions. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. Someone had to take care of all this stuff, so he owned people. Um, they were. Uh, I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me. I was wiser than anyone. I had more possessions than anyone before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold. Verse 8, And the treasure of kings and provinces. So I had more flocks and herds, more possessions than anyone. I had silver and gold. Some of it came from kings that paid tribute. Some of it came from provinces. That means taxation. So I had all these people just giving me money. I mean, he is filthy, rich, and he is powerful. You would think, man, this is surely gonna do it. You're laughing, you got vineyards and your own alcohol, your own wine that you're producing? You've got these incredible houses. Your, your house is incredible. You've got gardens from Better Homes and Gardens on the cover. You've, you've got all this stuff. You've got all this money. You've got all these possessions. And you've got someone to take care of every need that you have. Next, he pursued art, specifically music. I got singers, both men and women. He, he had people to entertain him. Do you ever think about this? Almost all of recorded history, the only way that you could hear music is someone to play it for you live. That's just a, such a foreign thought, isn't it? And we have music playing all the time. It's on your computer, it's on your phone, you listen in your car, you go to a restaurant, there's music, you shop, there's music. We have music playing all the time you don't even think about it. So live music would be a luxury to have multiple men and women singers, in other words, have a choir that was there to sing whenever you wanted them to sing, just like pressing play on your phone. They were there to sing to inspire you, to entertain you. He said, I had all that. You're thinking, man, in a day with no instant music, if you had instant music, you were the man. having an enti- Getting an entire choir to sing for you in your mansion, every one of these, these are baller moves, are they not? One thing after another. This guy is setting up his life amazing. Nobody has this life, and yet that didn't do it. I had singers, men and women, and many concubines. Many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. What is a concubine? Well, that question, what is a concubine, is the most dreaded Bible question for every children's ministry teacher in the history of children's ministry. I'm convinced there are thousands of people that will not teach in children's ministry, the Old Testament, because when it comes to concubines, Johnny's going to say, what's a concubine? I'm going to have to answer that. So, uh, but we're all adults, sixth grade and up here, so we can talk about a concubine. Um, and uh, a concubine is a woman in this case, not a wife, but someone that the king would use, and I use that word intentionally, use for sexual gratification. Someone that he would use for sexual gratification. Solomon had 700 wives, First uh, Kings 11 tells us. And Solomon had 300 concubines. He created an erotic paradise for himself. And he says, you know what I found out with all that? It was striving after wind. Striving after wind. I mean, this is the pursuit of many who think sex is the answer. It's this transcendent experience that will stick with me and will be life-giving to me. Now, we live in a day... When um, kings don't have harems, that's not a common thing like this. And we live in a day where women have agency that they did not have culturally in Solomon's day. So we have men and women today who are looking to have multiple sexual partners in a chase for real meaning in life. One woman named Carrie Cohen has written a book where she, uh, in the book, uh, talks about the emptiness of her life from pursuing multiple uh, men for sexual relationships. It gets to the point where she loses track of their names and actually begins to lose track of who she is, which is what she is writing about. And in there she says, for a man, thinking about all of these relationships, for a man this might be a pleasant trip down memory lane, counting up his conquests, she writes, but for a girl it's a whole different story. I had let these men inside me wanting that to make me matter to them. She writes, wanting it to make me matter. That's what he's talking about. Pursuing the experience of sex, sexual experiences, to feel something, to be someone, to find this is, I matter, this matter, I found what really matters in life. And even... Uh, sex and marriage. Sex the Bible presents as a gift, which can be misused just like wine, but it's a gift. It is not gain. So sex is a gift to be used in the, appropriate, uh, uh, in the appropriate way within marriage between one man and one woman. It's to be enjoyed as a gift, but it is not something that is gain. In other words, we're not to find our identity, our purpose, our meaning, our everything in sex. And that's true even when it's experienced as a gift in marriage because married sex cannot completely fulfill a person. You may have a great evening of romance and passion, but you know what? The next day you're going to wake up and there are crying kids and there are diapers and there are work deadlines that are over you and there are bills waiting to be paid and there's traffic on the way to work and your knee still hurts, and it's, you can't get better. with. It. Hey, life still goes on. That's why it's not gain. That's why it's not this surplus that makes your life. It's a beautiful gift. Sex is a beautiful gift, but a terrible God. And to worship at it will leave you empty. The last two on here are achievement. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Okay, I was the greatest. I did more than anyone. I achieved more than anyone. That should be enough. But it wasn't. Also, he looked at his work, verse 11. Many of us try to find life in our work. Um, Then I considered all that my hands had done, verse 11, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He said, I look at my life, work, all that I've accomplished, and he accomplished a ton, built the temple for the lord in jerusalem he he accomplished a lot um, for the glory of god that was wonderful but he said i look at all this stuff i did for myself and he says behold it was vanity it was it was elusive i'm not taking it with me It, it, it was it was temporary these things don't give me meaning why why do these nine pleasures ultimately not give meaning. The reason is because the pleasures of life are not meant to be leveraged for my satisfaction, but they're to be received as a gift. These are not things we attain or we achieve or we do or we experience for myself, as he said, but rather a gift. All pleasure is to point us to God. They are gifts. Pleasure is a gift Of God, life is to be stewarded as a gift from God, lived for His glory, and He gives these wonderful gifts of pleasure to us. And when we experience a home, and a wine, and a a joke, or an evening with friends, and some money to buy what we need, and, and wonderful art, which is so uplifting and can be transcendent even in itself, when we experience our job and certain achievements. Those are not for our ultimate meaning and satisfaction so that we root ourselves in those. Rather, they are to be enjoyed as gifts, not something I control. Because if you chase those things, you will always find yourself empty. It's not lasting, but God eternal is lasting. Solomon's life is the picture of sort of hedonistic, immaterial, excess, And the truth is, when we read his account, we don't pity him. If we're honest, some of us envy him. He has the dream life with all of this brilliance, possessions, estates, more money than he can spend. He has, in this text, literally wine, women, and song. That's what he has. But the preacher's memoir proves that you can't laugh enough, you can't drink enough, you can't build enough, you can't own enough, you can't listen enough, you can't see enough, you can't have sex enough to make the emptiness go away. It will not happen. But we all keep trying. We all keep rooting saying, This is it. But think about it, isn't it? I got the promotion, I've arrived. A month later, you realize, oh, i got to do the job, and it's not it. Now you're looking for the next thing. One, one social commentator who I find has a lot of insight, well, he's not really a social commentator, but has a lot of insight on this theme in Ecclesiastes. I don't think he has solutions that I've heard. I haven't heard any of his solutions, so I'm not recommending him for solutions, but he's got great insight. It's Jim Carrey. Uh, go, go watch his, go watch his um, I think it's 2016 Golden Globes, watch him use sarcasm and take a room full of stars and say, this is nothing. What are we living for? It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and he, he said this, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Someone who had experienced it all with Ecclesiastes-type wisdom. The toil which leads to nothing, is the f- it's the result of the fall. It's the fallout of the fall. It's the end result of sin. This is the first sin. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything. God has given them a perfect environment, pleasures everywhere. Everything is absolutely perfect, and they look around and say, is this all there is, God and perfection? We want something else. We don't want to submit to God and receive his gifts We want instead to set our own right and wrong. We want to be God. And we want to use the gifts for ourselves. Not to submit to God and receive gifts to be used for him and his glory, but to use them for ourselves. And since that time, we have all been born with that drive. This sin breaks our relationship, our fellowship with God. So that rather than finding meaning in God in all of life, meaning in all of life, sin comes in and it squeezes the meaning out of everything in life and takes the gifts of life and makes them gods, makes them pursuits to chase and to find our lives in. And it's just emptying. And every time we get that emptying feeling that there's got to be something more. There's not enough. I've had the, these nine and another nine. Whatever you want to come up with. I've had all those and I still feel empty. That emptiness is to point us back to God. Saying you're on the wrong path. You're on a path that is not delivering. Cannot deliver what you are looking for. And God provides a way back to the right path. We're on the wrong path by nature. The right path is Jesus who is the path. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus comes as God. the God-man, lives a perfect life, dies for our sins. He's raised to defeat the power of sin and death. He's raised to overcome the curse of meaningless and striving after wind. And he comes to give new life, life that is a gift. He comes to give us new life to know him and to be on a different path that leads to eternal life where we will experience life as it was meant to be experienced. And we get to experience now, we get to experience now tastes, more than tastes, seasons even, of this kind of life, periods where we see clearly and experience all that God provides, a good meal. That probably should have been on the list. It comes up later in the book. But a good meal, a beautiful relationship, a job, a home, a garden, maybe yours is a small one, but a garden, a hike in the mountains, where we can experience all that and see the glory of the creator and enjoy life as gift, not gain to be mastered and hoarded. Here's a verse that talks about this, Psalm 1611, God is for pleasure. This is what Psalm 1611 says. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You were created not for the path of wisdom to find your own way, not for the path of pleasure to find meaning in pleasures. You were made for the path of life in Christ, where there's presence of God, the fullness of joy. And that's where we're headed, the fullness of joy, life with pleasures forevermore at his right hand. That's where we're headed to the medicine of earth. And in the meantime, may God uproot us from the paths that we so often take looking for life receive christ thank you for listening to this sermon from grace church to receive future messages subscribe to the podcast on itunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org life in him life is gift